July 3rd, 2021. This is The Odd Zone, and I am J.D. Kiker. I'm here with my co-host, Kevin Big D Moss. And go ahead, Kevin. He's going to get eaten by a shark. <laughs> That's Kevin's other personality. And we're, we're here with the... Uh, the only human being who buffers like a computer, Danny. How you doing, Danny? Hi. <laughs> and that's about as good as it's going to get. Danny's on painkillers because his back's hurting, so. He's seeing pink elephants and purple balloons. Pink elephants. Pink elephants. Pink elephants on parade. They're coming to take us away. Ha ha. They're coming to take us away. Hee <laughs> ha. All right. And here we are. We're all tired. This should be a really good one. All right, so the um, the big congressional UAP UFO BS report came out last Friday, which uh, we just posted an episode on, which was a whole lot of nothing. We literally had to BS half of it because there was nothing in the report. So to make up for that crap, we're going to do an episode. It's all about UFOs this week, a little bit of UFO history. Danny, if he stops buffering, he's going to give us some information on some possible answers as to what might be in the skies, or at least at one point. And then Kevin has a really cool story about um, an attack. That what, when, when did this happen? Your story. September 1st, 1977. 1977. So we're basically spanning from the final days of World War II up until 1977. Um, a lot of the stuff we're going to cover here is sort of a surface level thing. We'll come back and circle to a lot of it and deep dive later after a lot of sleep. Which we all desperately need. So, how are you guys doing before we get started? Good. Looking forward to this. Got some good information. Hopefully, it'll uh, come out of my mouth the way it is in my head. <laughs> and right. uh, we'll be good. Danny? Loading, loading, loading. Hi. <laughs> for, for what everybody didn't see at home, Danny just gave us a thumbs up on an audio program. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> That's where we are right now. Does that mean you're number one? Is that what that number, <laughs> that finger is? <laughs> yeah. Okay. So I'm going to take us back to actually the Battle of Los Angeles. It was starting in 1942. For my, I kept thinking it was like the Foo Fighters of uh, World War II, but this actually goes before that because I'm stupid. Is it the best of you? Uh, the Pretender. <laughs> Didn't think I needed you. <laughs> ah. It's the only reference I have. I actually love that band. Foo Fighters is a great band. That's all you got. I'm so glad you guys are here. <laughs> <laughs> I saw a uh, interview with um, <clears throat> Dave Grohl. Dave Grohl, and he was talking to this other guy, the drummer, and uh, he said, "He said I'm so so glad that nobody really listens to the drums in like the whole album. Never mind. Why? He said because I ripped." everything off he said it's all just like the gap band stuff old disco shit <laughs> and he pulled it up and he's like you know never mind it's like ba-bum, ba-dum, ba-dum. and then he pulled up the gap band and he directly ripped that shit off <laughs> he's like i'm so glad nobody really pays attention and the guy says we well, you know what you know you're a phenomenal drummer he's like no no i'm not i'm not a phenomenal drummer i'm a phenomenal copycat <laughs> yeah and it, and it the honesty from that interview was awesome i was like hey here it, you go guys at least somebody says it well, you remember that book you had that time um it was like about art and like drawing comic books we had like a whole bunch of different stuff like that like i mean you've had it too before danny and like all the artists say the same thing it's like you just copy what you see 
Yeah. You know, nobody does anything new anymore. It's like, oh, that's great. Let me try to do that. Right. You know? so they, like they say in the film, industry, every story's been told. You just have to figure out a new way to tell it. Yeah, and they're exactly. not doing that. They're just, never mind. Yeah, yeah. They're just copying the whole thing. That's a rabbit hole we don't need to go in. Yep, exactly. All right, so the Battle of Los Angeles, 1942. Uh, unidentified aerial objects trigger the firing of thousands of anti-aircraft rounds and raise the wartime alert status. Uh, the Battle of Los Angeles, also known as the Great Los Angeles Air Raid, is the name given by contemporary sources to a rumored attack on the continental United States by Imperial Japan and subsequent anti-aircraft artillery barrage, which took place 24th of February to the 25th of February, 1942, Los Angeles, California. Um, Incident occurred less than three months after the United States entered World War II in response to the bombing of Pearl Harbor and the bombardment of Elwood near Santa Barbara. Danny, you're smiling like a... Apparently, they didn't like Elwood's service either. Elwood's... Oh. <laughs> but up, but up. But up. Nobody knows what we're talking about. <clears throat> Elwood hires for the company that Danny works for. Um, Danny's a stripper, in case anybody's wondering. Mm. For old ladies. Who are My name isn't whatnot. Ryan. You're just going to drop names, aren't you? Well, I didn't, you didn't say the last name. Didn't say the last name. Okay. Um... The, ah, fuck, I already said that. <laughs> when documenting the incident in 1949, uh, the United States Coast Artillery Association identified a meteorological balloon, yet another balloon, sent aloft at 1 a.m. as having started all the shooting and concluded that once the firing started, imagination created all kinds of targets in the sky, everyone joined in. And in 1983, the United States uh, Office of Air Force History attributed the event to a case of war nerves triggered by the balloon now, the reason it's in ufology is that a photo published in Los Angeles Times on the 26th, like two days later, 1942, has been featured as a UFO conspiracy theory because it looks like a bunch of spotlights are going up to the object. And what they said was because it's so dark, they had to doctor that image just so something would show up. So the balloon or whatever it was took on the shape of, of a UFO. That's what they say, but yeah, I don't know. As an aside to that, there was actually a Japanese program in 1944 called the they used friggin' balloons to attack the United States. They it was what they were going to try to start forest fires or whatever. Called, like that, like that was a real thing they were going to do. Yeah, no kidding. Called the Fugo balloon, what they named them. Fugo there was balloon. actually, I think they put ex- some explosives in them, and uh, one actually killed. A family over in, I think it was California. Oh, wow. Hmm. Because they didn't have any aircraft uh, that could assault the United States directly because of... So they just figured they'd just like float it right over and just let it... Yeah, they were trying to... What they were trying to do is start forest fires over in Pacific Northwest. Yeah. Kind of like what happened California. last year in 2020, yeah. Yeah. Hmm. That's a pretty good plan, actually. So, I mean, you just float it over and hope for the best that it lands wherever it's going to land. That's like when the... The Allied forces dropped guns all over France. They dropped these, it was a little 45 caliber gun. It had six shots in it. Mm-hmm. And they dropped them all over France so the people of France could kill yeah, it was a Liberator pistol. Yeah. Liberator pistol. Huh. <clears throat> That's pretty freaking neat. So they just like made big use of the whole airdrop mm-hmm. technique. All right. So this air raid or in 1947 in Los Angeles. 42. 
42. You're right. It's not 1947. It's 1942. Uh, I only know that because I'm looking at the number. Yeah. It's a pretty interesting deal. Like the the picture that was put into the Los Angeles Times. I don't know how much you know about photography in the 40s. Oh, man. I live for that. I know everything about it. Yeah. What well, do you know? The negatives that they use, you know, they still use the old one cameras where you have one shot, pull it out, had to put another piece of film in there. Okay. Okay. There was these little notch things in the corner that they used to identify what company made the negative, mm. when it was made, all that kind of information on the negative. Okay. The Los Angeles Times used a certain stock from Kodak. Okay. Every picture they have was of that stock. Right. Except that picture. Really? That picture was a copy onto another company's negative. And then that's what they got. And then they had to go in and doctor it up because it's really, really light. When they show, when when you look at it, I mean, it almost looks like there's nothing there. Yeah. So they had to go in and really do some contrasting to make it show up. And uh, so that's like, you know, like you said, that's the number one piece of evidence everybody goes to is that picture. Mm-hmm. They don't even know who took that picture. Like it wasn't anybody from Los Angeles Times. They know that because of the cardstock. They know that none of their photographers turned in the picture. They don't know where the picture comes so from. They, they can just come from anybody. Right. Yeah. It can come from anybody. They actually had a hard time finding the location where the picture was taken. But they used like landmarks and things in the back to finally figure out it was taken from a pier, you know, right there in Los Angeles. They still don't know who took it or where it come from. Huh. One of the reports that I saw on it the commander of the uh anti-air thing it says in the report they started firing at an uh unconfirmed aerial something like they didn't even know if it was there or not but they were so afraid to not react because of pearl harbor that you know they went ahead and started shooting and shot like thousands of anti-aircraft rounds and they were saying that those anti-aircraft rounds because like they you know they would basically glow as they're going through the sky. Mm-hmm. Then people were seeing those rounds going across. Go, oh, look, there's another one right there. And there's something else. At the time, they weren't thinking UFOs. Yeah. You know, no, they were thinking or, Japan. Yeah, that's all Japan. Like, even the people on the ground, you know. Well, at the time, there were a couple of sporadic incidents where Japanese submarines right after Pearl Harbor did shell, uh, like, California. I wonder if that's what the Elwood thing is they're talking about, the yeah, bombardment. There was a, um, a Japanese sub spotted off the coast. But they said it was like Santa Barbara area. Well, that's what that was. Hang on, I'll go back to it. Um, yep, that's it. It said a bombardment of Elwood near Santa Barbara yeah. on the 23rd. Yep, yeah. Yeah, you're right. They said, but it wasn't like a bombardment. It's a little bit of an air of, you know, sort exaggeration. Of yeah. Well, back then, the <clears throat> frigging submarines had that dead gun. Yeah. Like a, yeah. maybe a three and a half inch gun or whatever. <clears throat> so, like, um, wait, three and a half. What? That sounds like a small... It is a small gun. It's okay. like that big. I think they're hmm. what they're doing is the diameter of the shell. Oh, okay. So, like, I mean, but what was the point of hitting, like, Elwood? Is that just to kind of, like, mess with them a little bit? I think... Shake the nerves up? I think, uh, honestly, what I think, I think Japan just had really shitty intel on anything. So, they, they're, they're thinking they're hitting the military base? They're yeah, they're, they think they're, they're doing anything, really, because what they were trying to do was to pull America back toward our West Coast, like with the fires and everything. They were trying to pull us back this way so that we would come out of Europe. Mm. Makes sense. Get us come back home. That way we're not engaged in the fight. Right. Well, ha-ha, screw you. We don't care about home. We fight for everybody else. We're That's America. Right. We're America. That's right. 
Okay, so now that we got that. But the other thing on that, where you get into the conspiracy theory on and everything, mm-hmm. there's also unconfirmed reports of a downed object in a neighborhood that was reported, but then... Uh, yeah, if, if anything was found, I do, I do remember reading that now. If, uh, if anything was found, it was never taken to like a, um, a police station or to the military or at least reported that it was taken there. In uh, terms of Japanese weirdness, mm-hmm. they also, towards the end of the war, they had friggin' submersible submarine aircraft carriers. They were attempting to use these to attack the Panama Canal. Wow. You know, that's that's something, and Danny and I talked about this other day when we were looking into the UFO history. There's a lot of tech that they had back then that you don't think they had back then. Like, we realized that uh, they were doing remote control missiles and, I guess, crafts, like early drone-type stuff in Germany in 1915. Yeah. And you wouldn't think of that. You know, you think about that time, it's like, you know, they were flying kites and got lucky with a few planes. No, actually, they were very much ahead. Yeah. So, you know, that's, well, that's pretty wild. Like that plan to use B-17s to, I think, to attack something over in Germany. They were, they had rigged up some B-17s and B-24s. Yeah, 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 yeah. They were just going to use them as a They're almost going missiles. to kamikaze it. Yeah. 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 The problem with radio control is you need command line of sight. Mm-hmm. So you had to have your freaking control aircraft there at the time. To freaking point them in the direction. Yeah, so if you're trying to fly from too far off, you don't know if you're actually on target or not. Yeah. Yeah, the story was something like they, they took those B-17s, they had a crew that would fly them up, get it on target like it's going to hit, and then they had to jump out. And then it basically went from being an aircraft into a freaking, you know, yeah, big-ass missile. <clears throat> um, didn't that go wrong, though? Didn't something happen with the jump? Or am I thinking of a different one? I think it was just... They didn't have the intel or something like that. Yeah, to hit the wrong place or didn't. Yeah, yeah. They're in baby baby bottle factories and yeah, and the, the wicker basket yeah. factory. All right, so this gets us up to 1944, which is the Foo Fighters, not Dave Grohl. My brain just went blank. I started buffering. Crap, this is gonna be so horrible. All right, sightings occurred in November 1944 when pilots flying over Western Europe by night. What? By night, reported seeing fast-moving, round, glowing objects following the aircraft. The objects were variously described as fiery and glowing red, white, or orange. Not blue. Not blue. Yeah. Am I blue? Some pilots described them as resembling Christmas tree lights and reported that they seemed to toy with the aircraft, making wild turns before seemingly vanishing. Pilots and air crew reported that the objects flew formation with their aircraft and behaved as if they were under intelligent control, but never displayed hostile behavior, which is something that continues with UFOs today. Um, and they could not be outmaneuvered or shot down. Now, just stopping right there for a second. They're talking about that glow, right? One of the things I read was, all right, say like we're when our B-17 and we look behind us and there's something flying behind us. Right. Well, if it's a, a rocket, like I say, it's it's self, radio controlled and it's following us. We can't see the rocket because it's nighttime. We don't see the body. What we see is the glow of the fire behind it. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. So to us, we see fireballs following us, but really it's actually a slow-ass rocket that is trailing us. 
And conversely, both Allied and Axis... You can pull that away from your mouth, dude. We can hear you. <laughs> conversely, both Allied and Axis sides uh, had extensive use of methamphetamines during the war and amphetamines. You're right. I forgot about that. That, that can add to it. Been up for three weeks straight. <laughs> and especially at nighttime. Yeah. No kidding. God, do you imagine how rough that is? You're like flying and like just everything comes to life because your, yeah. your brain is fried. Yeah. You see that uh, reflection coming off the window, and it's just like, it's a fairy. <laughs> That's pretty wild. Um, December 13th, 1944, Supreme Headquarters Allied Expeditionary. No, that's not even right. Expeditionary. Thank you. Force in Paris issued a press release, which was featured in the New York Times the next day, officially describing the phenomenon as a new German weapon. And it's... January 15th, 1945 edition, the Time Magazine carried a story entitled Foo Fighter, in which it reported that the balls of fire, great balls of fire, have been following the USAAF. Danny, what's that stand for again? United States Army Air Force, is that what yeah. that was? Followed the USAAF night fighters for over a month, and that the pilots had named them Foo Fighters. It's based off like some kind of comic book or something that was out back then. I think that's what it was. Um... One of the one of the pilots said something like, "They asked him what it was. He said, oh, it's a Foo Fighter,' because that was something that was named in the comic book. But I don't know. Sighting from September 1941 in the Indian Ocean was similar to some later Foo Fighter reports from the deck of the SS Pulaski, a Polish merchant vessel transporting British troops. Two sailors reported a strange globe, glowing with greenish light, about half the size of a full moon." Uh, as it appeared to us, they alerted a British officer who watched the movements of the object with them for over an hour. I say, dear boy, it seems that thing seems to be following us around. It's very bright and glowy. They were just seeing the Loch Nahr. The lo- what the hell's a Loch Nahr? Is that like the Loch Ness? That freaking, uh, you remember that sphere, that glowing sphere from heavy metal? Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, Charles R. Bastion of the U.S. 8th Air Force reported one of the first encounters with Foo Fighters over... Belgian Netherlands area, he described them as two fog lights flying at high rates of speed that could change direction rapidly. During the debriefing, his intelligence officer told him that two RAF night fighters had reported the same thing, as it was later reported in British newspapers. And that's a good point, is that it's multiple people seeing it at the same time. Mm -hmm. So, you know, they're usually cooperated. Um, last thing I have on this is the career U.S. Air Force pilot Dwayne Adams often related that he had witnessed two occurrences of a bright light which paced his aircraft for half an hour and then rapidly ascended into the sky. Both incidents occurred at night, both over the South Pacific, and both were witnessed by the entire aircraft crew. Aircraft crew. Speaking is tough for me. The first... Um, First sighting occurred shortly after the end of World War II while Adams piloted a B-25 bomber. Second sighting, early 1960s, when Adams was piloting a KC-135 tanker. So that's pretty interesting that it covered a span like that. Um, so what do you think about that, about the these Foo Fighters? Well, honestly, we got to remember at the time, uh, friggin' planes that flew exclusively at night was relatively new. True. Yeah. Night operations were new. People didn't know what the effects of flying at night would be. Fair and point. there was a U.S. Navy, they were doing a study or whatever to mm-hmm. see the psychological effects of nighttime flying. Right. And 
near as I can tell, they're just seeing shit, man. <laughs> Could be. I mean, I, I didn't think about that. A lot of this stuff is, you know, it's brand new to them. They don't know how to make heads or tails of what they're seeing <laughs> and they're methed out of their head, you know, for the time. Have y'all ever heard of the, uh, the Night Witches? I don't think so. Yeah, it was a Soviet yeah. female. Yeah, it was all females. And they put them in the worst piece of shit planes they have and they would send them up at night to drop bombs and shit. And they were very effective, but it's like there was no lights. There was no, they were just up there. Huh. And the Germans started calling them night witches because the middle of fucking night bombs falling out of the sky when at that time, like you said, night flying was not really a thing. So basically the Russians just said, let's take a group of people we don't give a shit about. Right. Put them in some planes that we don't fucking need and fucking see what happens. You know, some generals, like, all right, look, we all got some mistresses we got to get rid of here because. Right. <laughs> <laughs> hey, ladies, you guys, you want to fly? Yeah. Sure. Die, die. Yeah. Soviet Russia, plane crash you. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, man. The thing with me is, and it comes it back to this a lot of times, is and it, it comes back to this in the story that I got later. A lot of it comes back to a bright, glowing orb. Mm-hmm. You know, so much that, you know, it's it's hard to figure out. Either they all experience the same sensation of fatigue and whatever, what have you, mm-hmm. or they're all seeing something of a similar nature. Right. You know what I mean? So The fact that the descriptions are all pretty similar. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's like these night fighters. They were the first aircraft... Because they were flying at night, they didn't have any damn. This was be- well before friggin' night vision. They mm-hmm. were the first aircraft with friggin' radar, so they're looking down at the damn radar screen. And I see where you're going. Yeah. Yeah. You you look at that long enough, and then you look up, and you're seeing spots. Yeah, that's a oh man, yeah. And all right, the other night I was at work, and I was parked in a spot that was pretty dark, and I took my phone and I was recording like a corner of the building. Yeah, this is when you were attacked by the raccoons. No, this is before the raccoons. Um, I was recording the moon and you know, like when light reflects on the screen, you get like that central light, but then you get that little tiny weird little shape that will kind of like move all over the place. If you move your phone around Well, I took and recorded it and just moved my phone just slightly. So it looked like an orb was flying through and I sent it to my supervisor and cause she's like all into that kind of stuff too. And she got a good sense of humor. So I sent it to her I was like, Hey, look, this glow, you know, orb flo- floating over the thing. She sent me back, like, she had an idea of what it could be. Like, one of the co-workers was with her. was like, hey, maybe it's uh, reflecting off of, like, something that was flying up there. And I let it go for a little while. So I was like, nah, actually, here's what it is. And I told her, I said, but, you know, it's that easy to misinterpret something like that. So, you know, like you said, you're, you're flying, you're not used to it. And the moonlight or lights off the buildings down there are hitting your window. You don't know mm-hmm. that that's what that is. Yeah. Man, when you think about it. Think about the situation that we put those people in. Mm-hmm. They're messed out of their fucking minds because they're feeding them this mess to try to keep them awake. They're long, extended hours of just boredom and everything else. It is amazing that we won that fucking war. Yeah. Well, that and you've got all this freaking black. You've seen the yeah. stuff coming. You see the freaking Persian Gulf stuff, all the the freaking flak and anti-aircraft mm-hmm. fire coming up in the night vision. Yeah. It's about five times worse over Berlin. Really? Yeah. Because, I mean, you couldn't see it. Because flak is dark. It doesn't do anything until it gets up, and then it's just... And it's just there. It's just there. And, yeah, so, I mean, it's like... And it's just a bunch of, like, little pieces of metal that just try to fuck your shit up. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know, it really was an amazing feat that those guys went over there and pulled that off, but... 
Hmm. As far as this stuff goes, man, it's so hard because, like, there's so many sightings that cite the same thing during a time when there was no internet. There was no daily news. There was no, you know. It can be mass hysteria where one's feeding off the other. Right. Yeah. Well, I mean, there could be a little bit where they're talking on the base. Maybe. But... Remember how the, who was it, Oscar Wilde did the War of the Worlds? Uh, uh, um. Orson Welles. Yeah. People yeah. thought it was real. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, because they had no other source of information. All they had was that. And, yeah. You know. And he played it pretty straight, too. Um, yeah, and something I didn't actually get into here, but if you look into these things long enough, and it actually feeds into what Danny's going to talk about later. It wasn't just orbs. They were also finding, uh, that was the beginning of the description of the cigar-shaped mm-hmm. craft that they were seeing. Um, well, post war, they had these things called ghost rockets. Yeah, and that can't. Yeah, right. So it started with like cigar shape, went to the ghost rockets. Now it's being called the Tic Tac, mm-hmm. which is what led to this congressional report last week. Um, so it's all similar shaped objects acting similarly over from like the late '40s till now, not attacking, staying close to military places. A lot of it's happening. Uh, what was it that, that video that you sent me? There was like a. It was training areas over the the water, but that was what what the hell's the water over here on the east coast? Is that Pacific? Yeah, yeah, over the Pacific mostly, but some of it was over the Indian Ocean too, which was listed here uh, later for some of the later stuff. So all very similar, and it's happening over this long period of time. East coast is the Atlantic. Well, you said yes, so you're as wrong as I am. No, you said yes. <laughs> <laughs> I did too. I'm uneducated. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't study geography as a kid. I watched cartoons. Um, I watched Super Friends, who sometimes didn't wear pants. Let's go. Let's go to the next thing. I think we've gone into a very bad place. Let's get All out right. of this rabbit hole. Yeah. Let's dive into another one. Okay, 1947. This is pretty interesting. <laughs> get the shovel. Um, 1947 is like the year for ufology. And I didn't realize like just how much until I started looking into it. Because every time we kept looking at stuff, that damn year kept coming up. So first it starts off um, with, let's see, was this 1940, it's 47, what month was it? Um, early part of July. Harold A. Dahl, that doesn't sound like a real name, reported that his dog was killed and his son was injured by debris in an encounter with four to six flying donut-shaped objects. He also claimed that uh, a witness was subsequently threatened by the Men in Black. This is where the Men in Black came from. Majestic, Project Majestic or Majestic 12? A little bit later was that, yeah. Um, that that was actually some BS that came out as a, uh, I think like it was like the 60s or something, of a, um, a report that somebody leaked. And then when they started looking into it, it was a Xeroxed report. Anyway. But no, the men in black, it's like, this is the first time where like some guys in black suits show up and go like, you talk about this, we're going to kill you. Or at least that's what they said happened. Um, The case was first reported to Kenneth Arnold in mid-July, about three weeks after um, it allegedly took place. Kenneth Arnold is actually the one who the flying saucer thing started with. So what happens is a few weeks after this, Kenneth Arnold... um, the Kenneth Arnold sighting sparked the name Flying Saucers. The sighting is considered as the start of modern UFO era. It happened on June 24th, 1947, when private pilot 
Kenneth Arnold claimed that he saw a string of nine shiny, unidentified flying objects flying past Mount Rainier, which, by the way, has a military base right beside it, um, much like Roswell, at speeds that Arnold estimated was at like around 1,200 miles per hour. This was the first postmodern, postmodern, post World War II sighting in the United States that garnered nationwide news coverage and is credited with being the first of the modern era of UFO sightings, including new, uh, numerous reports, sightings over the next two to three weeks. So he reports his, and then I think it's like the Sun or the Times or one of them sends him this thing, saying, hey, these guys are talking about these like donut-shaped craft, dumped a bunch of like debris on them and killed the dog and hurt the dude's son, and they paid Kenneth Arnold like a couple hundred bucks to go out, because at the time it would be like $1,000 to go and investigate because he was now the UFO guy after reporting his thing. So it, it's kind of out of sync the way the stories get told. But um, on the 24th, Arnold was flying from Chahalas, Washington to Yakima, Washington in a call air a two plane on a business trip, uh, made a brief detour learning of a $5,000 reward, which would be $58,000 today. Jesus for the discovery of a U.S. Marine Corps C-46 transport airplane that had crashed near Mount Rainier. Uh, the skies were completely clear, and there was a mild wind a few minutes before 3 p.m. at about 9,200 feet uh, in altitude near Mineral, Washington. He gave up his search and started heading eastward toward Yakima. He saw a bright light flashing and then um, a sunlight reflecting kind of like on a mirror. Afraid he might be dangerously close to another craft, he scanned the air, the sky around him, and uh, all was clear except for a DC-4 that appeared like on his left and a little bit behind him, um, about 15 miles away. About 30 seconds after seeing the first flash of light, Arnold saw a series of bright flashes in the distance off to his left, um, or north of Mount Rainier, which was then 20 to 25 miles away from his position. He thought they might be reflections on his airplane's window, but a few quick tests, rocking his airplane side to side, removing his eyeglasses, later rolling down his side window, ruled this out. The reflections came from flying objects. They flew in a long chain, and Arnold, for a moment, considered they might be a flock of geese, but quickly ruled this Not out. seagulls. Huh? As, as a flock of seagulls. That's where the band started. Including... <laughs> Um, don't do that. Just screw me up. <laughs> he quickly ruled this out for a number of reasons, including the altitude, bright glint, and obviously very fast speed. He then thought they might be a new type of jet. Somebody was testing out from that base, looking intently for a tail. It was surprised that he couldn't find any. So the dragon had no tail. They quickly approached Rainier and then passed in front, usually appearing dark in profile against the bright white snow field covering Rainier, but occasionally still giving off the uh, light flashes. They flipped around erratically. That's something else, too. These tic-tac that they're seeing now, that's why they describe them. That they're, when they're flying, they just kind of like flip-flop around instead of like planes, you know, banking and turning and stuff. So they seemed thin and flat, and they were practically invisible. Arnold described them as a series of objects with convex shapes. And this is going to go back to what Danny's going to talk about later. Though he later revealed that one object differed by being crescent-shaped. And they have a picture, like a sketch of this online. It looks very much like this craft from the, was it Northrop? Is that what you said? Yeah. All right. Several years later, Arnold State, he likened their movement to saucers skipping on water without 
actual shapes to the saucers. So they weren't shaped like saucers. They just moved across the air like that. And that is where the newspapers put it out that they were flying saucers. So that's where we get flying saucers from. So write that down in your diary of useless information. Um, after this, like basically just did like a long series of interviews telling about what he saw and that became the whole flying saucer thing. And he became the flying saucer guy. He would later say like, I wish I had not reported it because he just got bombarded with, uh, you know, people wanting to know everything about it. Some of that stuff. I mean, we were going on the other day, we were traveling and drove by an airport. Mm -hmm. Okay. And there was an airplane that was getting ready to land or whatever. From my point of view, looking at the plane, the plane wasn't moving. Right. At all. Right. It's very stationary. So I get really confused when somebody says, oh, I seen it and it was moving approximately 1,200 miles an hour. What does that look like? 1,200 miles an hour. I I don't have any. Do I have a reference for it? I don't have a reference for 1,200 miles an hour. I can tell you what, you know, five miles per hour looks like right in front of me. Mm -hmm. But. Neither would they at the time. Yeah, from because that. Because the fastest aircraft went like were prop powered. And right. One of the other articles, like I, I didn't copy and paste it, this file I'm reading from here, was that he has um, basically some like calculator type stuff that they had back then that was pen and paper type deal mm-hmm. where you could like starting with distance and you could basically calculate the speed of an object and the size of the object from the distance. So he was basically doing the math to figure it out because he was like, okay, it started here. It's going here. It did it by this time. From this distance, it's moving approximately that much. So it's it, he got the number from a calculation. So he's like a journalist or whatever, right? No, he's a trained pilot. Oh, okay. Okay, well, that, that lends some credibility to it because I'm like a journalist. I mean, he might have failed math. Yeah, you know? yeah, no kidding. No, but, this guy's an actual like professional pilot. Um, and that's okay, why he I'll, had all the stuff on him. I'll, yeah. I'll give that some credibility. Uh, 1,200 miles an hour, I think that's probably just pulling some shit out of the air. He's like, that bitch was really fast. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's nothing to say that he didn't get the calculation wrong. Right, right. That's what I'm saying. I, yeah. I was unaware that they even had, I mean, I knew they had shit to do that, but I didn't know if he was doing that or just guessing or what. But I don't know, man. It's like, okay, this is the, the saucers and cigar look, objects and the Tic Tacs and everything. Where did the triangle ones come in that were like big in the eighties? Remember back then we were all they were all talking about these triangles of lights, which I always kind of put down to they were aircraft, mm-hmm. you know, that like the because they were stealth test, bombers, yeah, yeah, the Hat Boy program back in the seventies, right? Exactly, yes, that's that's where it can, we. I don't have that here, but like Danny, that was a lot of that stuff. Um, it was, but yeah, it was mostly the stealth program, and people were seeing it, and it hadn't come out public yet. Mm-hmm. And from the bottom, yeah, it looked just like uh, they call them uh, black deltas. In yeah. ufology. Um, but later on when they revealed it and you see them flying over, it's like, oh. But a difference there is that the way these things flew, the black deltas that they were seeing didn't zip by like a stealth does. Mm-hmm. They were coming overhead slowly, and some of them were so big that they were blocking out the stars. So they were floating across like a dirigible, but had the shape of the stealth, which cannot fly like that. Right. So no, that part I don't know. Um, but the ones that they saw, like just hauling ass across the sky, like absolutely could have been the stealth. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm with you. Like a lot of it can just be miscalculation and, and again, some of the information he has on these, these craft that Northrop was testing, um, they were just at the beginning stages of testing rocketry 
on some craft that were shaped just like what he's talking about. Mm-hmm. So he may have been doing calculations that are based on airplane propeller, you know, speeds yeah. and miscalculated because it was rocketry that nobody was used to yet. Right. You know, so that's very possible too. And it's like they describe these things as toppling over and flipping and everything. Well, mm-hmm. that could just be light, the way lights reflecting off of it, it seems could to be. be yeah. Again, he says these things were like, you know, quite a few miles away. Uh, I don't care how good your eyesight is or how right. far in the sky you are. Right. When something's a dot yeah. to you, yeah. It's a dot. It's a freaking dot. It's a little incident. I don't know if you guys heard this one. Uh, Roswell. 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 It's in, uh, it's not in old Mexico. It's in new Mexico. Oh, oh it's in a new one. Though. Yeah, it's in a new Mexico. That's right. Okay. Um, big surprise, 1947. No. Yeah. Really? Really. Not only that, but it's actually July 1947, like literally a couple of weeks after Kenneth Arnold stuff. Yeah. <laughs> All right. The Roswell incident is a July 1947 crash for the United States Air Force's balloon at a ranch near Roswell, New Mexico. All right. So in the subsequent conspiracy theories that claim the crash was that of a flying saucer and that the truth was covered up by the United States government... July 8th, 1947. Hang on. Do radio voice. <clears throat> on July 8th, 1947, Roswell Army Air Force Base, no, airfield, I can't read, issued a press release stating that they had recovered a flying disc from a ranch near Roswell. The Army quickly retracted the statement and said instead that the crashed object was a conventional weather balloon. That's right, a conventional weather balloon. Uh, the Roswell incident didn't surface again until the 1970s when a retired lieutenant colonel... Marcel, in an interview with a UFO researcher, Stanton Freeman, I believe it was, said that the weather balloon account had been a cover-up story. Ufologists began promoting a variety of increasingly elaborate conspiracy theories, claiming that one or more alien spacecraft had crash-landed and that the extraterrestrial occupants had been recovered by the military, which then engaged in a cover-up. In 1944, the United States Air Force published a report identifying the crashed object as a nuclear test surveillance balloon from Project Mogul. This happened in 1947, and they released the report in 1944? No, 94. 94. 94. You said... I'm so glad you're listening. (laughs) (laughs) I was confused for a moment. None of us listened to this damn thing. Um, (laughs) Okay, so... Say it was from this uh, Project Mogul, another balloon, but... A second Air Force report published in 1997, 1997, yeah, thank you, concluded that stories of alien bodies probably stem from test dummies being dropped from high altitude. Why? Yeah, what's the purpose? What the hell? I I get the, the, you know, we're testing for nuclear radiation or whatever, because they were doing nuclear tests out in that area, um, or had done in the past. Rounding back to your uh, Los Angeles, the Battle of Los Angeles. Uh Uh-huh. There was two guys that worked in a factory, and they went out back, and they shot off nautical flares for the hell of it. <laughs> and everybody was saying, they were saying that that was part of what they saw that they started shooting at. Well, it took like three weeks for these guys to come forward. They thought they were going to lose their fucking jobs. <laughs> <laughs> so, I've often wondered that about the uh, Phoenix lights hmm. that happened in the 90s. That's one of those where you see the lights and the people that were under it said like it blocked the freaking stars. Like whatever it was, it was solid. But I've often thought, okay, let's just say it's a test craft, right? Some kind of, it, it's floating. I don't know how they're doing it. But either way, I've always thought there was like these two pilots in this thing and they're flying and they're just talking 
They're bored out of the freaking minds. It's just a standard flight. We're going to go over Phoenix. Nobody's going to see us. And they're just chatting it up. And one of them goes, hey, did you turn off the running lights? No. Did, did you turn off the running lights? Oh, shit. And they realize they left the lights on. And that's what you're seeing. It's just the landing lights. And, you know, been running the whole time. And they got back and like, well, so you guys are fired. Danny, what do you think? Good job. <laughs> I looked over. He was looking through me. <laughs> what I just heard was recalculating. Danny <laughs> said those weather balloons. With swamp gas. With swamp gas from Venus. Wow. That was great. I think I looked, dude. I just looked over at you. He's like... Your eyes were glazed over. I'm like, I got to. I got to, I got to do it. I got to throw it under the bus. <laughs> okay. So, um, now that I've lost my place. All right. The sequence of events was triggered in late June. <laughs> I'll put the shades on so you can hide. In late June by um, William Mac Brazel, a ranch foreman, noticed clusters of debris on the Foster Ranch which was about 30 miles outside of Roswell. And by the way, if anybody wants to do this, go on Google and look at the actual Wikipedia. Wikipedia? Wikipedia. Wow. Yeah, that just happened. Uh, I'm glad this isn't being recorded. The Wikipedia page for this, and they actually have the latitude and longitude for it. And you can punch that into Google Earth and go right to it. I did that because I have no life. Um, so this farmer, and now this guy had no power, no phone, no nothing. He's like old school farmer. You know, again, this is basically still turn of the century for a mm-hmm. lot of these people. Um, he's out in this field and he's trying to get, I think, I think it was cattle he was trying to get across and there was just all this debris in the way. So he just takes all the debris, pushes it under a tree and he's like, I'll go into town later and tell them what I found. When he gets into town, he starts hearing like people talking about flying saucers. Danny, are you, are you okay? I'm sorry, talking about the old farmer just kind of reminds of me of somebody we used to work with. Um, Don't drop name. I'm not dropping name. Okay. Kind of heavy set older fellow who had a fellow who had a UFO sighting over uh, Highway 77. Yes. Yeah. Um, this was a a friend that grew up with dad, and he told us a story. Uh, we'll circle back to Roswell in a second. He told me a story one night when I was at the guard check up there. It's where he and I both were doing security work, quote unquote security work. <laughs> And um, he said that when they were building the interstate that runs down there by the house, they were kids, so they were on their bikes. And he said one night, they decided to go out on that. It was still gravel. They were still doing it at the time. And go, go ride along this gravel. And so they had, you know, police or security or what the hell ever out there that would run people off. So it was kind of like, oh, let's go out there. And so they go out, they go riding. And they get under the, one of the bridges out there. And when they got out there, he said it was like it was nighttime and then it was daytime. There's just light. It was just so freaking bright, but there was no sound. And so they go under the bridge. They're hiding and everything. He said, sit there for a little bit. And the light just went, was gone. Like, oh, hell, what the hell was that? So they come out, they're looking and, you know, oh, it was like a, maybe it was a UFO or something. So he says, just ask your dad about it. He'll tell you. I was like, okay, fine. I went to dad. I was like, dad, such and such tell me the stories. He goes, what no damn UFO? He's full of shit, you know? <laughs> but that was the story he told. Yeah, he was like, yeah, we, we saw a UFO as kids. And Dad was like, no, the fuck we didn't. <laughs> um, it's almost like the, the men in black got to your dad and he was like, okay, fuck it. Yeah. It didn't happen. And, and yeah, three decades later, he's like, we ain't seen shit. 
We know nothing, we hear nothing, we see nothing. We were never here. This is a story we are sticking to. We do not care if you like it. All right, and continue, nobody man. will get that reference. No, not at all. Even though this is two episodes we've done. That might actually be the new running thing of the show. Um, on or around July 6th, he reported the discovery to Sheriff George Wilcox in Roswell. Wilcox, in turn, uh, called RAAF Intelligence Officer Majel. Jesse Majel? God, I was trying to be clever there. Major Major, Rigel? Major Jesse Marcel, who assembled a detailed marsupial. marsupial to visit the Foster Ranch around 4 p.m. that afternoon. Brazel left Roswell, followed by Marcel, Lieutenant Colonel Sheridan Cavitt, and Master Sergeant Bill Rickett. The following morning, presumably on the 7th, the Army Air Force detail inspected the debris of the Foster Ranch, transported back to Roswell on the 8th. Public information officer, this is the guy who got everything started, Walter Hout, H-U-T, issued a press reference saying um, it was a flying disc. And that's why everything went sideways. And my thinking on this is the flying saucer thing is brand new right now. It's the big talk. These are the Air Force guys of that era where they were known to pull pranks and just say goofy shit. The military was not as organized as it is now, right? Right. So this guy probably went, you know what? I'm going to tell him it's a damn flying disc. And he gets out and tells them, it's like, it was a, we found a flying disc out in the middle of this field near Roswell. And the press just pounced on it. I don't think he expected it to be the story that it ended up being. Well, uh, Colonel Blanchard, commanding officer of the 509th, contacted Roger M. Ramey, who basically shut this whole thing down, uh, of the 8th Air Force in Fort Worth, Texas. Ramey ordered the object to be flown to Fort Worth at the base. Warrant officer Newton confirmed Ramey's preliminary opinion, identifying the object as a weather balloon and its quote-unquote kite, a nickname for a radar reflector used to track a balloon from the ground. And then what they said was that kite is actually the material they said that would you could crumble it up and it would fold back out by itself. Mm-hmm. It's like a uh, like a tent. You know, they have those tents, like you pop it up and it goes and just puffs right. into shape. They said that was basically what they were talking about it was. I remember one of those stupid books I got from the library one time that Claimed that we got all of our friggin' advanced technology in the 80s from that crashed aircraft. Uh, yeah, I remember hearing several stories. It's like uh, I said the microwave come off of like, the, the UFO technology. Like, that's what we did with it? <laughs> we made hot pockets. <laughs> they flew to Earth. We made hot pockets. Um, so, essentially, they, they put out a press release. Said, okay, look, we took a look at it. It's just a weather balloon, Project Mogul, whatever. Well, they later said it was Project Mogul, but that's all it was. And then it, it went away. They said that it went perfectly. As soon as they put it out, the press went, oh, all right. And it just dropped. And nothing was ever heard of again until 1978. UFO researcher Stanton Freeman interviewed Marcel, the same guy who went. And he's the one you see taking pictures with the debris and all the famous pictures. Uh, who's the only person known to have accompanied the Roswell debris when it was recovered from Fort Worth. Um, and then, you know, recover, followed it all the way back to Roswell. In November of 79, Marcel's first filmed interview was featured in a documentary called UFOs Are Real, co-written by Freeman. The film had a limited release, but was later syndicated. But on February 28th of 1980, the, <laughs> the tabloid, the National Enquirer, you remember that freaking thing? Yeah. God. Top-notch journalism. Yeah. Brought large-scale attention to the Marcel story. Um, and the TV series In Search Of aired an interview with Marcel describing his participation in this. What the one with Leonard Nimoy? Ah, crap. Um, I don't know. It was like a whole bunch of those shows back then. Hmm. Um, 
I think he was in it. What? Let me look it yeah, up. look that up. My yeah, actually, I think you're right. I think it might have been him. Um, but anyway, what Marcelo said was of the original press conference. He said they wanted to comments from me, but I wasn't at liberty to do that. So all I can do is keep my mouth shut. General Ramey is the one who discussed, told the newspapers, I mean the newsmen, that's what they called them back then, what it was, and to forget about it. And is nothing more than a weather observation balloon. Of course, we all knew differently. The accounts given by Freeman and others following that initial thing with uh, Marcel in the 80s, and they, they went and talked to a whole bunch of people who supposedly had something to do with it. They all consistently agreed that it was something other than a weather balloon. But Marcel himself said of the bodies, he said he consistently denied that there were any bodies whatsoever. Yeah, it was Leonard Nimoy. Of, uh, in search, then, of, uh, was it called? In Search Of? Yeah. Then Mitch Pelegi from the X-Files did a revival in 2002. And then uh, Zachary Quinto again in 2018. Hmm. I didn't know they kept making them. Um, Brazel, the guy who initially found it, when they uh, took the pictures with the stuff, one story is Brazel said, this is it. This is, you know, this is what it is. And the, and the pictures are basically aluminum foil, sticks, and string. All the stuff that weather balloons would be made of. Marcel later said, well, actually, no, they went and got that stuff, brought it in, and had them take pictures with it to make the story go away. So it's like, which one yeah. do you believe? Um you know, I don't know this Marcel guy. <laughs> I don't know anything about him. I don't know if he had any, like any kind of like history. You know, did he have any gambling debts he was trying to pay off? You know, I mean, I'm not trying to throw the guy under the bus, but the automatic like let's just believe him because he's yeah. in the military. Like military people don't yeah. lie. You know, I'm just thinking what what MacGyver do with all that stuff? Build a bomb or a, a flotilla of some type and escape <laughs> under a really cool music montage. <laughs> um, Through a Stargate. Through a Stargate, yeah. In the 18 van. In the 18 van, that's right. But, yep, so that's basically the story. Like, after that, after that one interview in the press jumped on it, especially the Inquirer, people started writing books about it. And that thing where they said, you know, Friedman and these other people, the initial investigators, they go off and they talk to people who lived there at the time. Well, everybody who wrote books later on basically just said, well, I went back and talked to some other people who didn't want to put their name in this book. Right. And that's where they would start making all these, you know, the more crazier claims that would come over the years. Um, and I'm not claiming one way or another. I'm just saying it's, you know, you're never going to really know. Yeah. yeah. Um, it, it's like I said, nowadays it's the whole, you know, that's their, that's their, their stock and trade now. That's, you know, that's how Roswell makes a, a lot of their money. Mm -hmm. You know, people there running souvenir shops for UFO stuff. So, you know, they're going to keep it going the best they can. But, you know, like I say, at some point, it's the the real facts have been completely gone. You know. <laughs> wow. That was loud. <laughs> so, But, yeah, I mean, uh, that's it. You know, it, uh, you're never really going to know what it is. And there's no better way to lend credibility to something than having Leonard Nimoy talk about it. Yeah. I mean. Very true. You know, you're talking about that whole market thing. Like, all right, the UFO book market to this day is like one of the most ultimate grifts. Um, the guy actually who's responsible, um, Luis Alessandro, I think is how you say his name. Alejandro. He's the one that's responsible for like leaking, quote unquote, the Tic Tac stuff. Mm -hmm. He's been all over that UFO circuit. 
and he's part of, or at least it wasn't part of this other group that their whole thing is selling books about UFOs. Right. And one of the running trends of all that stuff is basically it's going to go like this. I'm going to come out and tell you, okay, we've got some new information. This information is huge, okay? And uh, we got the information from, quote unquote, an unnamed high-ranking source in the military mm-hmm. or from the Pentagon. Yep. And then um, we're, the, the data's coming. We have, we have uh, as if it's new material, we have the material being checked by labs, but we already know what it is. Right. Right. I'm more than willing to tell you all about it if you buy my book. Right. Right. It's all right here in this book if you just pay for it. Yeah. So that's that's the whole you know entire market. For 1995. Oh, this is going to be good. Danny. Yes. It's your turn. <laughs> oh, dear Lord. <laughs> well, I kind of misconception in this UFO bullshit. Is, uh, for example, let's say the whole Nazi UFO thing. Okay. And apparently everybody goes back to that. The friggin', you've seen a history channel. There's all this friggin' BS going around about Nazi secret weapons. Right. Well, let's talk about, uh, there was one recently on BBC saying that the stealth bomber came from, uh, the friggin' German HO-229 that was built by the Horton brothers. Well, apparently not. Because Jack Northrup was flying a similar aircraft, but propeller-powered. No, wait, who, who is he, first of all? Like, Jack Northrup, like, was he the owner of the company? Or was yeah. he a, Okay. So this was, like, his whole thing. He was, like, yeah. Howard Hughes at this time, I guess. He started flying his M-1M prototype in July 1940. Was this the one you showed me that kind of had sort of a, um, sort of like a rocket with wings on it? Or is this the one that's more like a triangle? Triangle. Triangle shape, okay. So this was 1940, yeah. See, that's before the Foo Fighters sightings and everything. Yeah. Yeah, Just a little bit before it, okay. And then in 42, he built a bigger version, the NNM. N-N-9-M. Again, triangle-shaped. Again, triangle-shaped, 1942. And where was he flying these? Uh, I think it was over in the desert. Like California-ish? Yeah. Okay. And it was like uh, the Krauts, the Horton brothers. Mm-hmm. They didn't even get anything flying until 44. They were flying unpowered gliders, prototypes. I mean, it was it was jet powered when they actually got it flying. But it wasn't until later. Yeah, like uh, we're talking about Kenneth Arnold mm-hmm. and his sighting. Uh, Northrop was testing a YB thirty five bomber aircraft that was competing with the B thirty six bomber, and uh, it was flying in June of forty six. It was later canceled in 1949, but they were doing test flights throughout this entire time. And that one, isn't that the one that kind of looks like that picture that he drew? It's, it's not completely convex, but it's like a rounded triangle. Yeah. yeah. It's very, I mean, the picture of, like Danny showed it to me, the picture of the thing the guy was flying and the one that Kenneth Arnold drew, 
the, it, it's almost like Kenneth Arnold's picture is the prototype they made the real thing from and then just streamlined it a little bit. It's very close. Then later they took those uh, B-35s and put jet engines on the back of them and called it the B-49. And eventually they canceled that later on and just went with the B-36. And then they became B-52s and became a band in the uh, 90s <laughs> and the early 2000s. See, I can do it too. <laughs> Were they all made with tin roofs resting? What? <laughs> Yeah, they made them at the Love Shack. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> Sorry, I don't get boomer references. Yes, you do. All by Chrysler and they're bigger than whales. <laughs> this is like some young person's listening going, what in the blue hell are they talking about? Hey, if nothing comes out of this, if some young person goes and finds the B-52's Love Shack song, yeah. then we have succeeded. It's okay. So what we're saying here in a very eloquent fashion is that this... Jack Northrup was creating aircraft that at least at some point lines up with the. And we were testing jet aircraft at the time too. Yeah, well, that was what late forties, the, no, the early it jet was stuff. Nineteen thirty-nine. It was that early. Yeah. Holy crap! We well, got we had our early engines, and then we later got some from the British yeah. because. The ME-262 was the first operational jet fighter from Germany. Mm-hmm. I mean, the British had one like that debuted like a month later. All right, so think about this. If, I mean, were those flying at the time of World War II at yeah. all? Yeah. Okay. They were so, operational. All right, so let's including say... Including the ME-163, which was rocket-powered. Yeah, so there it goes. Let's say me and you... We're we're in our like you know B whatever the hell it is we're flying. Kevin's in the rocket powered you know jet that's flying way off. I mean he's he's way off in the distance. We can't actually see the craft. It's nighttime. They would move flying at night. Yeah, okay, well, I just fucked my whole thing up because I was gonna say like, if we looked over, we're seeing the flames off of your ship. Yeah. You know we'd be thinking like oh look fireball you know and it would trail above it. But what about test though? They could have been testing something at night. The whole thing about the ME-163 and 262 and all mm-hmm. them, they didn't have radar. To fly uh, at night at the time, you had to actually have radar. Okay. Hmm. Well, or at a, least a good theory till it know where the fuck you're going. It's a fair point. Okay. So what else you got? <laughs> Pretty much it. He has a Q. Yeah, he has a, uh, yeah so, I was doing that because of the whole stringing people along bullshit with the UFOlogy. Uh huh. That's exactly, that's exactly what, it is. what it sounded like. Yeah, that's. I mean, the the grift is so hard on that. Like last couple of years, um, I've, I've listened to a few podcasts that like just it's very much actually what inspired this one because they talk about similar stuff. But most of them are comedians talking about it, so they're just really finding you know the fun in it. Yeah, because we're dead serious. Yeah, here. we're dead serious here. Um, well, at least we're talking about like trying to be a little bit, um, a little more harsh on it than some yeah. other people would be. But when they were talking about it, like every freaking time, it's like okay, they got this new information and it's an unnamed source. It's like my god, this is where CNN got it from. You know, it's just over and over with this crap. And then you get the person up there and you listen to them talk, and it's like, look, I'm telling you guys, this is it. This is the big disclosure. And then when the, all the stuff finally comes out, it's like, oh, yeah, we didn't actually have anything. My bad. But if you buy the next book, right. it'll be in that one. Right. Copies in the back. Kevin, the man known as Moss. Yes. The 
Attack of 1977, correct? Yes. Tell us the story, sir. Let me take you back to September 1st of 1977, when none of us were even tickling our daddy's balls. Um, Never tickled my dad's balls. (laughs) Kevin had a very very weird childhood. (laughs) There was an apron (laughs) and a feather duster. (laughs) So, anyway, this thing... It's is, this is not new information. That's why he identifies and, as a chicken. Uh, this is not new information. Uh, the feather duster? Yeah, no. Uh, it's called the Fort Benning Incident. It is written about in a book by a man named John Vasquez. He wrote it in a book and they released it in like the late 90s sometime. <laughs> that is the end of my story. I'm glad you all came. I think it it just shat my pantaloons. I'm so sorry. (laughs) Three, two, one, go. All right. So we're going to start back at September 1st, 1977 at Fort Benning, Georgia. Okay. Uh, This incident was reported in a book by John Vasquez. He was one of the soldiers at Fort Benning. At this point in time, all the major military branches sent people to Fort Benning for training. One afternoon, uh, after chow, which is usually when they were supposed to be bunking down and going to bed, mm-hmm. uh, all 1,300 of them are told to go report to the, to the parade field for a announcement. They're lined up waiting for this captain to make this big announcement. Vasquez notices that a lot of his, the troops around him are all looking off into one direction. So, uh, he asks what they're looking at, and they tell him to look at the brightest star on the horizon. And he looks, and the brightest star on the horizon is making these circles. And then it starts getting, it, it's coming closer to them. Then, the, again, glowing orbs of light, mm-hmm. they come down and, for lack of a better term, start to attack these 1,300 soldiers. Um, attack how? Well, as the light hits <clears> them, <throat> Some of them are struck with paralysis. They okay. can't move. Okay. Um, Vasquez said that uh, he looked when he looked around, all of the people around him, they had their chin to their chest, and they were mumbling, but they couldn't move. He said he felt himself going into that when one of his friends grabbed him, and they ran off. So there's a group of soldiers, Vasquez is included in this group, and they find they get under a crawl space under their barracks. So they're hiding from these things. Uh, Essentially from the light that is paralyzing everybody. Right. They're hiding from the the orbs that are emitting the light and paralyzing everybody. Okay. Um, One of their, one of their drill sergeants runs by and he's telling, he's telling them, you know, stay down, stay in there. And as he does that, a smaller orb comes down and it chases him into another building. One of the guys gets up, the bravery to go check on the soldier or the sergeant yeah. and he comes back he says well he's unconscious you know I don't, he got him he yeah. got him so they're noticing that the smaller orbs are starting to make search patterns around mm. the field at at this point uh it finds where they're captive at or where they're being hiding at right and uh Vasquez said that he woke up in a, uh, like a hospital. There was a bunch of beds, steel 
you know, like mili- tables. Mi- like military hospital. Yeah, yeah, like military hospital, metal tables. Yeah. And there's just soldier after soldier laid out on these tables all the way down through there. And uh, he says that uh, he was looking around, trying to look around, and then the there are two beings in front of him with long fingers. You know, that's one of the things that, you know, yeah. And uh, said that they told him to look at their face. He said, look me in the eyes, and they were like, sleep, you know, don't worry about this, whatever. Well, he starts waking up, and uh, he's looking around, you know, trying to figure out what the hell's going on. And all his buddies, you know, all the soldiers are starting to uh, come back, too. Right. They're starting to kind of wake up. And uh, they're all dismissed to go back to their barracks. Like, so, so when they wake up, they're not waking up in this hospital type thing. They're no, waking no, no. up they're back in the field. Back in the field. Okay, I got you. One thing, <clears throat> when they wake up, they were supposed to be in the field for the meeting at 7.30. Right. Okay. They had been out there for like 30 minutes before anything happened. So it should have been about 8 o'clock. Okay. And then however long it took for this to happen. Vasquez looks at his watch, and his watch says 7.30. Like nothing happened. Like no. nothing happened. He asks the guy next to him what time it is. He tells him it's 3 a.m. The other guy, they asked somebody else, and he's like, it's closer to 4 a.m. All the watches are running. They're just set at the wrong time. They, they have the wrong time on them. Hmm. So they realize that everybody's missing time. Right. A significant amount of time. Then when they're all told to go back to their barracks and go to bed, a lot of the soldiers who were immediately put into the paralysis position, they start falling down, puking, just... Nauseated, discombobulated all yeah, the way around. Yeah, whole thing. So they all get back to their bunks. They all crash out. Some of them end up having to go to the hospital that night because of nausea and everything. Right. The next day, well, before they went to bed, get to that, he said all of them were looking and their clothes had been put on wrong. Like the buttons of the shirt were off kiltered. So like they have been undressed, redressed, but redressed right. the wrong way. Their shoes were tied in these unimaginable knots. They had trying to get their shoes untied and couldn't get them untied. Yeah. So the next day, uh, he wakes up at like 10 o'clock, which is like a no-no in the Army. Sure. You, you, you have to be up and go to breakfast and all that stuff. Well, him and a couple others, they woke up about the same time. They get up, they get dressed, they run out, but there's nobody there to get on to them. Nobody's, nobody's giving, out. Nobody's yeah. reprimanding them, no, nothing. It's, it's almost like the superior officers just... Abandoned their post. They just weren't there. So they go through this. More people are going to the hospital for all this stuff, you know. And uh, they're being told nothing happened, you know, all that kind of stuff. More nothing to see here. Yeah, more nothing to see here. Well, then the next day, a lieutenant, a female lieutenant, which was odd back in those days, you know. Yeah. A female lieutenant shows up and she is a psychiatrist and she starts having appointments with everybody that was on the field. Is this like directly the next day after it happened? It's a couple of days after. Okay. All right. That's yeah, that's a little better. Cause yeah. I was thinking like what an odd coincidence that would be. Right. Right. Yeah. But, um, a couple of days after she shows up and she starts having, you know, taking all these people in and Vasquez said when they come out, they were just kind of mumbling and you know, just blah, whatever. You know? Yeah. Had forgotten about the incident. Uh, so well to the fact that he is the only one that remembered anything happening. 
until like 12 years later, a command sergeant comes out and says that he also remembers it, but he remembers it being September 14th instead of the 1st, which everybody just kind of blows aside of being memory. Uh, describes pretty much the same thing, but he says he has a piece of debris from one of the ships. Okay. That was there. Okay. So now we've gone from orbs of light to actual craft. Crafts. Okay. But this guy has never shown it to anybody. Of course. He won't he won't Release send it. it for testing of any kind. I don't know if he was on money or what, but apparently nobody thought it was important enough to try to get do it. anything with. Okay. So to me, this is where the weird part comes in is when you come into trying to explain it. Right. Okay. You have your conspiracy theories number one. Mm-hmm. Aliens attacked a military base and 1,300 people and only one guy remembers it. Right. And two guys. Okay. Two, um, the military was trying some kind of brain manipulation. Testing on their own. Testing people. on their own people. Which they are known to do. Which they are known to do. And then the official report that everybody gets if you go to Fort Benning and look in their records, mm-hmm. there was an outbreak of measles. I, I don't know that measles caused that kind of reaction. I, I've never heard of it myself, but yeah. they their records indicate that in that summer, at that time, there was an outbreak of measles and that they were hallucinating because of high fevers and things like that. Swamp gas. Yeah, swamp gas. Also, you know, the military, they're big on keeping records. You know, they, they have all these records, right? right? All the military's medical records are stored at Walter Reed Hospital. Okay. That's where every, everybody has their own, but then they send a master copy or whatever to them so they have it. Walter Reed has no record of any measles outbreak at Fort Benning ever. So it doesn't track. Right. So that's locally, oh, it's measles, but the people who are supposed to keep track of that kind of shit are like, yeah. mm, sorry, guys. Sorry, we don't fucking talk about Hmm. So, the other soldiers, like when you were reading up on it, um, you know, like you got these two. They say like I, we basically remember the same thing, just wrong dates. Mm-hmm. The other soldiers, what are they remembering at all? Like, uh, it, you know, are they just recalling like uh, we kind of blinked and like it was hours later. Basically, they remember going to the assembly mm-hmm. and then going to bed. And that's it. And that's it. That's all they remember. Not the majority of them. Some of them might have some little sprigs of difference in there. I'm not going to say they don't, but I'm going to say the majority of them remember going to the thing and going to bed. They have no recollection if there was ever a speech given or if anything was ever done because they were supposed to go there to get some kind of announcement. Right. They have no idea what that announcement was. That psychologist that came up or psychiatrist, whatever she was. Yeah. Um, was there a regressive hypnosis done here? That's a, a part of the theory of the government doing mind control yeah. is that she was doing hypnosis and clearing out that memory yeah. of a, basically a botched memory control. You know. Right. Well, all right, the, the Betty and Barney Hill story. I don't know mm-hmm. if you're familiar with that one or not. Yeah. All right. That's actually where that one gets discounted like really strong is because the whole entire alien thing of that came out of regressive hypnotherapy. You're right. I forgot about that. Vasquez and Norton both saw a hypnotherapist. And that's why they're getting discounted. Um, regressive hypnotherapy has been 
um, pretty much just thrown under the bus because, Bullshit. yeah, pretty much like because all right, under hypnosis, all it's basically you're just going into that part of the of your mind like that cycle where you're just above dreaming. It's creative daydreaming. A memory, um, you can look back on a memory you have that's absolutely correct, but if you start playing with that memory, you can actually change it. Hmm. Or you can imagine a time, if you have it with enough emotion, you can imagine something that happened that didn't, you can create synthetic memories. So if your hypnotherapist is trying to actually lead you and starts asking leading questions like, okay, did you see any creatures with large black eyes? Yes, I did see. You know, you know, so hmm. you start answering, right? Um they're finding that a lot of times with this regressive hypnotherapy that that's what's happened. I mean, I, I, you know, I'm, I'm, I have no idea. I've never actually seen it done, but I'm just saying that's what they say is um, a lot of times when you hear them say that, yes, I actually did realize something happened after I went to therapy. They're like, okay, well, how do you know it wasn't just the person leading you? Right. Yeah. Um, but that is interesting though. Um, I'll tell you what this sounds like. It sounds like a few of these guys went to a disco <laughs> account for the friggin' uh, flashing lights or whatever. Yeah. Got incredibly drunk and then concocted all this bullshit because they finally realized what they did and they were ashamed of themselves because of the... <laughs> they went and saw Bridget the Midget. <laughs> no, they kind of got it on with each other and oh, no, oh, wow. this was before the wow. don't ask, don't tell stuff <laughs> and the uh, prevailing opinions of the day. They're just... The flashing lights with the disco balls. <laughs> Danny woke up and just went off the deep end. Yeah, and he's here. <laughs> hey, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Have we had, like the three of us, have we had this conversation before where Danny made that, other than the, the last part at the very end, where you made that statement about them, you know, like, I mean, seriously, did we not have this conversation or is it just me? I'm sure we've had it about, I mean. But where he's made that, that same scenario? Yeah. When you were saying it, I just had like the weirdest deja vu. Like we have literally had this conversation where you came up with that answer. But well, I come up with a damn thing because that's what it sounds like. You got the freaking army psychologist yeah. coming in at the end. And this just sounds like a bunch of people coming up with some bullshit because they don't want to say what actually happened. I mean, it does kind of sound like that, but you know, when it all happened at a... Assembly. assembly, thank you. We're all standing in assembly. That's a lot different than it happened at the club, you know, unless it was a big orgy outside, like it's the Greeks, you know, pulling up their togas and going at it. I mean, it's this, an assembly like that, it's a little bit different. It was um, a rave before the raves. I guess so. But I don't know. Well, I can tell you this. All right. You got one guy who remembers everything. Mm -hmm. Then you have another guy who starts to remember things, both of them under. The hypnosis. And you said the second guy was like 12 years later. Yeah. He was some time later before yeah. he come out. So he can be influenced by the original story. Right. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, the command sergeant, because I, I, I tease a little bit of a local connection with him. The command sergeant went on to other assignments or whatever. And uh, after he made the claim, like soon after he made the claim, they found him dead at his post from heart attack and cancer at Fort McClellan. No kidding. Yeah. And so he fucking got gone. Not know, long after. Not long after his statement come out. So. But still, even his fam, nobody's come forward with this debris that he supposedly had. Yeah. You know, so, I mean. That'd be something interesting to look into. I wonder if his family's still around here. I don't know. 
Because by the way, anybody that's listening to this, we're actually um, about an hour away from Fort McClellan. Where we're recording right now, where we're, we're all from, is not even that far from it. No, where Fort McClellan was, it's no longer a base. Well, yeah, it's not a base anymore, but the place, yeah. yeah. The debris actually turns out to be something he got from the 1980s version of Love Stuff. Oh, God. <laughs> the rabbit hole is falling in on you, Danny. Come on. <laughs> dig, Danny, dig. <laughs> Come back to the light, Danny. And leave the love rock behind. <laughs> B-52s were playing at the rave or the disco. <laughs> it's all happened at the love shack. See, it always comes back around. Symmetry. But yeah, I mean, that, that is interesting. I, I think we need to dive off into that one. Oh, wrong thing to say. <laughs> that was unfortunate ecology of words. Um, we need to look more into that. <laughs> Not the depraved part. Need to go deeper. <laughs> need, to, need to penetrate deeper... <laughs> Get to, to we need, need need to touch bottom <laughs> on this story. <laughs> we got to probe for more facts. <laughs> oh, the story's getting anal quick. Um, oh, I feel like we should probably wrap this up. This is going going to yeah, wrap it before we tap it. All right. Yep. So, all right. Uh, thank you all for listening, and we're sorry that this happened in your ear. Um, I'm J.D. Kiker with Kevin Moss and the legend known as Danny. We'll catch you on the next episode of The Odd Zone. Until next time, good luck.